0: Chapter Seven Part One of A Chronicle of Wolf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. A Chronicle of Wolf by William Wood. Chapter Seven Part One The Plains of Abraham, September thirteenth, seventeen fifty nine. On August 19th, an aide-de-camp came out of the farmhouse at Montmorency, which served as the headquarters of the British Army, to say that Wolfe was too ill to rise from his bed. The bad news spread like wildfire throughout the camp and fleet, and soon became known among the French. A week passed, but Wolfe was no better. Tossing about on his bed in a fever, he thought bitterly of his double defeat, of the critical month of September, of the grim strength of Quebec. Quebec formed by nature for a stronghold, and then, worse still, of his own weak body, which made him most helpless just when he should have been most fit for his duty. Feeling that he could no longer lead in person, he dictated a letter to the brigadiers, sent them the secret instructions he had received from Pitt and the king, and asked them to think over his three new plans for attacking Montcalm at Beauport. They wrote back to say they thought the defeats at the upper fords of the Montmorency, And at the heights facing the Saint Lawrence, showed that the French could not be beaten by attacking the Beauport lines again, no matter from what side the attack was made. They then gave him a plan of their own, which was to convey the army up the Saint Lawrence and fight their way ashore somewhere between Cap Rouge, nine miles above Quebec, and Pointe aux Trembles, twenty-two miles above. They argued that by making a landing there, the British could cut off Montcalm's communications with three rivers and Montreal from which his army drew its supplies. Wolfe's letter was dictated from his bed of sickness on the 26th. The brigadiers answered him on the twenty-ninth. Saunders talked it all over with him on the 31st. Before this, the fate of Canada had been an affair of weeks. Now it was a matter of days. For the morrow would dawn on the very last possible month of the siege, September. After his talk with Saunders, Wolfe wrote his last letter home to his mother, telling her of his desperate plight. The enemy puts nothing to risk, and I can't in conscience put the whole army to risk. My antagonist has wisely shut himself up in inaccessible entrenchments, so that I can't get at him without spilling a torrent of blood, and that perhaps to little purpose. The Marquis de Montcalm is at the head of a great number of bad soldiers, and I am at the head of a small number of good ones, that wish for nothing so much as to fight him. But the wary old fellow avoids an action— doubtful of the behavior of his army. People must be of the profession to understand the disadvantages and difficulties we labor under, arising from the uncommon natural strength of the country. On September 2nd he wrote his last letter to Pitt. He had asked the doctors to patch him up, saying that if they could make him fit for duty for only the next few days, they need not trouble about what might happen to him afterwards. Their patching up certainly cleared his fevered brain, for this letter was a masterly account of the whole siege and the plans just laid to bring it to an end. The style was so good, indeed, that Charles Townsend said his brother George must have been the real author, and that Wolfe, whom he dubbed a fiery-headed fellow only fit for fighting, could not have done any more than sign his name. But when George Townsend's own official letter about the battle in which Wolfe fell was also published, and was found to be much less effective than Wolfe's, Selwyn went up to Charles Townsend and said, "'Look here, Charles, if your brother wrote Wolfe's letter, who the devil wrote your brother's?' Wolfe did not try to hide anything from Pitt. He told him plainly about the two defeats, and the terrible difficulties in the way of winning any victory. The whole letter is too long for quotation, and odd scraps from it give no idea of Wolfe's lucid style. But here are a few which tell the gist of the story. "'I found myself so ill, and am still so weak, that I begged the generals to consult together.' They are all of opinion that, as more ships and provisions are now got above the town, they should try, by conveying up five thousand men, to draw the enemy from his present position and bring him to an action. I have acquiesced in their proposal, and we are preparing to put it into execution. The Admiral will readily join in any measure for the public service. There is such a choice of difficulties that I own myself at a loss how to determine. The affairs of Great Britain, I know, require the most vigorous measures— you may be sure that the small part of the campaign which remains shall be employed, as far as I am able, for the honour of His Majesty and the interest of the nation. I am sure of being well seconded by the admirals and generals. Happy if our efforts here can contribute to the success of His Majesty's arms in any other part of America. On the thirty first, the day he wrote to his mother and had his long talk with Saunders, Wolfe began to send his guns and stores away from the Montmorency camp. Carleton managed the removal very cleverly, and on September 3rd only the 5,000 infantry who were to go up the St. Lawrence were left there. Wolfe tried to tempt Montcalm to attack him, but Montcalm knew better, and half suspected that Wolfe himself might make another attack on the Beauport lines. When everything was ready, all the men at the point of levy who could be spared put off in boats and rowed over towards Beauport, just as Moncton's men had done on the disastrous last day of July. At the same time, the main division of the fleet, under Saunders, made as if to support these boats, while the levee batteries thundered against Quebec. Carleton gave the signal from the beach at Montmorency when the tide was high, and the whole 5,000 infantry marched down the hill, got into their boats, and rowed over to where the other boats were waiting. The French now prepared to defend themselves at once, but as the two divisions of boats came together they both rowed off through the gaps between the men of war. Wolfe's army had broken camp and got safely away right under the noses of the French without the loss of a single man. A whole week from September 3rd to 10th was then taken up with trying to see how the brigadier's plan could be carried out. The plan was good as far as it went. An army is even harder to supply than a town would be if the town was taken up bodily and moved about the country. An army makes no supplies itself, but uses up a great deal. It must have food, clothing, arms, ammunition, stores of all kinds, and everything else it needs to keep it fit for action. So it must always keep what are called communications, with the places from which it gets these supplies. Now Wolfe's and Montcalm's armies were both supplied along St. Lawrence, Wolfe's from below Quebec, and Montcalm's from above. But Wolfe had no trouble about the safety of his own communications, since they were managed and protected by the fleet. Even before he first saw Quebec, a convoy of supply ships had sailed from the maritime provinces for his army under the charge of a man-of-war, and so it went on all through the siege. Including forty-nine men-of-war, no less than two hundred and seventy-seven British vessels sailed up to Quebec during this campaign, and not one of them was lost on the way, though the St. Lawrence had then no lighthouses, boys, or other aids to navigation as it has now and though the British officers themselves were compelled to take the ships through the worst places in these foreign and little-known waters, the result was that there were abundant supplies for the British army the whole time, thanks to the fleet. But Montcalm was in a very different plight. Since the previous autumn, when Wolfe and Hardy had laid waste the coast of Gaspé, the supply of sea-fish had almost failed. Now the whole country below Quebec had been cut off by the fleet, while most of the country round Quebec was being laid waste by the army. Wolfe's orders were that no man, woman, or child was to be touched, nor any house or other buildings burnt, if his own men were not attacked. But if the men of the country fired at his soldiers, then they were to be shot down, and everything they had was to be destroyed. Of course, women and children were strictly protected under all circumstances, and no just complaint was ever made against the British for hurting a single one. But as the men persisted in firing, the British fired back, and destroyed the farms where the firing took place on the fair play principle that it is right to destroy whatever is used to destroy you.' It thus happened that, except at a few little villages where the men had not fired on the soldiers, the country all round Quebec was like a desert, as far as supplies for the French were concerned. The only way to obtain anything for their camp was by bringing it down the St. Lawrence from Montreal, Sorel, and Three Rivers. French vessels would come down as far as they dared, and then send the supplies on in barges, which kept close in under the north shore above Quebec, where the French outposts and batteries protected them from the British men of war that were pushing higher and higher up the river. Some supplies were brought in by land after they were put ashore above the highest British vessels, but as a hundred tons came far more easily by water than one ton by land, it is not hard to see that Montcalm's men could not hold out long if the St. Lawrence near Quebec was closed to supplies. Wolfe, Montcalm, the brigadiers, and everyone else on both sides knew this perfectly well. But as it was now September, the fleet could not go far up the much more difficult channel towards Montreal. If it did, and took Wolfe's army with it, the few French men of war might dispute the passage, and some sunken ships might block the way, at all events for a time. Besides, the French were preparing to repulse any landing up the river between Cap Rouge, nine miles above Quebec, and Deschambault, forty miles above and with good prospect of success, because the country favoured their irregulars. Moreover, if Wolfe should land many miles up, Montcalm might still hold out far down in Quebec for the few days remaining till October. If, on the other hand, the fleet went up and left Wolfe's men behind, Montcalm would be safer than ever at Beauport and Quebec, because how could Wolfe reach him without a fleet when he had failed to reach him with one? The life-and-death question for Wolfe was how to land close enough above Quebec, and soon enough in September, to make Montcalm fight it out on even terms and in the open field. The Brigadier's plan of landing high up seemed all right till they tried to work it out. Then they found troubles in plenty. There were several places for them to land between Cap Rouge, nine miles above Quebec, and Pointe aux Trembles, thirteen miles higher still. Ever since July 18th, British vessels had been passing to and fro above Quebec and in august murray under the guard of holmes's squadron had tried his brigade against point aux where he was beaten back and at deschambault twenty miles farther up where he took some prisoners and burnt some supplies to ward off further and perhaps more serious attacks from this quarter montcalm had been keeping bougainville on the lookout especially round point aux for several weeks before the brigadiers arranged their plan bougainville now had two thousand infantry all the mounted men, nearly three hundred, and all the best Indian and Canadian scouts, along the thirteen miles of shore between Cap Rouge and Pointe-aux-Trembles. His land and water batteries had also been made much stronger. He and Montcalm were in close touch, and could send messages to each other and get an answer back within four hours. On the seventh, Wolfe and the brigadiers had a good look at every spot round Pointe-aux-Trembles. On the eighth and ninth, the brigadiers were still there, well, five transports sailed past Quebec on the eighth to join Holmes, who commanded the upriver river squadron. Two of Wolfe's brigades were now on board the transports with Holmes. But the whole three were needed, and this need at once entailed another difficulty. A successful landing on the north shore above Quebec could only be made under cover of the dark, and Wolfe could not bring the third brigade, under cover of night, from the island of Orleans and the point of Levy, and land it with the other two twenty miles up the river before daylight the tidal stream runs up barely five hours while it runs down more than seven and winds are mostly down next if instead of sailing the third brigade marched twenty miles at night across very rough country on the south shore it would arrive later than ever then only one brigade could be put ashore in boats at one time in one place and bougainville could collect enough men to hold it in check while he called in reinforcements at least as fast on the french side as the british could on theirs another thing was that the wooded country favoured the french defence and hindered the british attack lastly if wolfe and saunders collected the whole five thousand soldiers and a still larger squadron and convoy up the river montcalm would see the men and ships being moved from their positions in front of his beauport entrenchments and would hurry to the threatened shore between cap rouge and pointe aux Trembles almost as soon as the british and certainly in time to reinforce bougainville and repulse wolfe The ninth was Wolfe's last Sunday. It was a cheerless, rainy day, and he almost confessed himself beaten for good as he sat writing his last official letter to one of Pitt's friends, the Earl of Holderness. He dated it, on board the Sutherland, at anchor off Cap Rouge, September ninth, 1759. He ended it with gloomy news. "'I am so far recovered as to be able to do my business, but my constitution is entirely ruined.' "'without the consolation of having done "'any considerable service to the State, "'or without any prospect of it. "'The very next day, however, he saw his chance. "'He stood at Etchemin on the south shore, two miles above Quebec, "'and looked long and earnestly through his telescope "'at the Foulon Road, a mile and a half away, "'running up to the Plains of Abraham, "'from the Anse de Foulon, "'which has ever since been called Wolf's Cove. "'Then he looked at the Plains themselves.' Especially at a spot only one mile from Quebec, where the flat and open ground formed a perfect field of battle for his well-drilled regulars, he knew the Foulon road must be fairly good because it was the French line of communication between the Anse de Foulon and the Beauport camp. The cove and the nearest point of the camp were only two miles and a quarter apart, as the crow flies, but between them rose the tableland of the plains three hundred feet above the river. thus they were screened from each other and a surprise at the cove might not be found out too soon at the camp. Now Wolfe knew that the French expected to be attacked either above Cap Rouge, up towards Pointe-aux-Trembles, or below Quebec, down in their Beauport entrenchments. He also knew that his own army thought the attack would be made above Cap Rouge. Thus the French were still very anxious about the six miles at Beauport, while both sides were keenly watching each other all over the thirteen miles above Cap Rouge. "'Nobody seemed to be thinking about the nine miles between Cap Rouge and Quebec, "'and least of all about the part nearest Quebec. "'Yes, one man was thinking about it, "'and he never stopped thinking about it till he died. "'That man was Montcalm. "'On the 5th, when Wolfe began moving upstream, "'Montcalm had sent a whole battalion to the plains.' But on the 7th, when the British generals were all at Pointe-aux-Trembles, Vaudreuil, always ready to spite Montcalm, ordered this battalion back to camp, saying, "'The British haven't got wings. They can't fly up to the plains.'" Wolfe, of course, saw that the battalion had been taken away, and he soon found out why. Vaudreuil was a great talker and could never keep a secret. Wolfe knew perfectly well that Vaudreuil and Bigot were constantly spoiling whatever Montcalm was doing, so he counted on this trouble in the French camp, as he did on other facts and chances. He now gave up all idea of his old plans against Beauport, as well as the new plan of the brigadiers, and decided on another plan of his own. It was new in one way, because he had never seen a chance of carrying it out before. But it was old in another way, because he had written to his uncle from Louisbourg on May 19th, and spoken of getting up the heights four or five miles above Quebec if he could do so by surprise. Again, even so early in the siege as July 18th, he had been chafing at what he called the coldness of the fleet, about pushing up beyond Quebec. The entry in his private diary for that day is, The Sutherland and Squirrel, two transports, and two armed sloops, passed the narrow passage between Quebec and Levy, without losing a man. Next day his entry is more scathing still. Reconnoitred the country immediately above Quebec, and found that if we had ventured the stroke that was first intended we should infallibly have succeeded. This shows how long he had kept the plan waiting for the chance, but it does not prove that he had missed any earlier chances through the coldness of the fleet, for it is significant that he afterwards struck out infallibly, and substituted probably. Well, it must be remembered that the Sutherland and her consorts formed only a very small flotilla, that they passed Quebec in the middle of a very dark night, that the St. Lawrence above the town was intricate and little known, that the loss of several men-of-war might have been fatal, that the enemy's attention had not become distracted in July to anything like the same bewildering extent as it had in September, and that the intervening course of events, however disappointing in itself, certainly helped to make his plan suit the occasion far better late than soon. Moreover, in a note to Saunders in August, he had spoken about a desperate plan which he could not trust his brigadiers to carry out, and which he was then too sick to carry out himself. Now that he was patched up enough for a few days, and that the chance seemed to be within his grasp, he made up his mind to strike at once. He knew that the little French post above the Anse de Foulon was commanded by one of Bigot's blackguards, Verger, whose Canadian militiamen were as slack as their commander. He knew that the Samos battery, a little further from Quebec, had too small a garrison, with only five guns and no means of firing them on the landward side so that any of his men, once up the heights, could rush it from the rear. He knew the French had only a few weak posts the whole way down from Cap Rouge, and that these posts often let convoys of provision boats pass quietly at night into the aux Foulon. He knew that some of Montcalm's best regulars had gone to Montreal with Lévy, the excellent French second-in-command, to strengthen the defence against Amherst's slow advance from Lake Champlain. He knew that Montcalm still had a total of 10,000 men between Montmorency and Quebec, as against his own attacking force of 5,000. Yet he also knew that the odds of 2 to 1 were reversed in his favor so far as European regulars were concerned, for Montcalm could not now bring 3,000 French regulars into immediate action at any one spot. Finally, he knew that all the French were only half-fed— and that those with Bougainville were getting worn out by having to march across the country in a fruitless effort to keep pace with the ships of Holmes's squadron and convoy, which floated up and down with the tide. Wolfe's plan was to keep the French alarmed more than ever at the two extreme ends of their line, Beauport below Quebec, and Pointe-aux-Trembles above, and then to strike home at their undefended centre by a surprise landing at the aux foulon Once landed, well before daylight— he could rush Vergor's post and the Samos battery, march across the plains, and form his line of battle a mile from Quebec before Montcalm could come up in force from Beauport. Probably he could also defeat him before Bougainville could march down from some point well above Cap Rouge. There were chances to reckon with in this plan, but so there are in all plans, and to say Wolfe took Quebec by mere luck is utter nonsense. He was one of the deepest thinkers on war who ever lived, especially on the British kind of war, by land and sea together. And he had had the preparation of a lifetime to help him in using a fleet and army that worked together like the two arms of one body. He simply made a plan which took proper account of all the facts and all the chances. Fools make lucky hits now and then, by the merest chance. But no one except a genius can make and carry out a plan like Wolfe's, which meant at least a hundred hits running, all in the self-same spot, no sooner had Wolfe made his admirable plan that Monday morning, September 10th, than he set all the principal officers to work out the different parts of it. But he kept the whole a secret. Nobody except himself knew more than one part, and how that one part was to be worked in at the proper time and place. Even the fact that the Anso Foulon was to be the landing-place was kept secret till the last moment, from everybody except Admiral Holmes, who made all the arrangements, and Captain Chads, the naval officer who was to lead the first boats down. The great plot thickened fast. The siege that had been an affair of weeks, and the brigadier's plan that had been an affair of days, both gave way to a plan in which every hour was made to tell. Wolfe's seventy hours of consummate manoeuvres by land and water over a front of thirty miles were followed by a battle in which the fighting of only a few minutes settled the fate of Canada for centuries." During the whole of these momentous three days, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, September 10th, 11th, and 12th, 1759, Wolfe, Saunders, and Holmes kept the French in constant alarm about the thirteen miles above Cap Rouge and the six miles below Quebec, but gave no sign by which any immediate danger could be suspected along the nine miles between Cap Rouge and Quebec. Saunders stayed below Quebec. On the twelfth, he never gave the French a minute's rest, all day and night. He sent Cook and others close in towards Beauport to lay boys, as if to mark out a landing place for another attack, like the one on July thirty-first. It is a singular coincidence that while Cook, the great British circumnavigator of the globe, was trying to get Wolfe into Quebec, Bougainville, the great French circumnavigator, was trying to keep him out. Towards evening, Saunders formed up his boats and filled them with marines, whose own red coats, seen at a distance, made them look like soldiers. He moved his fleet in at high tide and fired furiously at the entrenchments. All night long his boatloads of men rowed up and down and kept the French on the alert. This feint against Beauport was much helped by the men of Wolfe's third brigade, who remained at the island of Orleans and the point of Levy till after dark, by a whole battalion of marines guarding the Levy batteries, and by these batteries themselves, which meanwhile were bombarding Quebec, again like the thirty first of July. The bombardment was kept up all night and became most intense just before dawn, when Wolfe was landing two miles above. At the other end of the French line, above Cap Rouge, Holmes had kept threatening Bougainville more and more towards Port-au-Trembles, Tremble, 20 miles above the Foulon. Wolfe's soldiers had kept landing on the south shore day after day, then drifting up with the tide on board the transports past port au then drifting down towards Cap Rouge, and then coming back the next day to do the same thing over again this had been going on more or less even before wolfe made his plan and it proved very useful to him he knew that bougainville's men were getting quite worn out by scrambling across country day after day to keep up with holmes restless squadron and transports he also knew that men who threw themselves down tired out late at night could not be collected from different places all over their thirteen mile beat and brought down in the morning, fit to fight on a battlefield eight miles from the nearest of them and twenty-one from the farthest. Montcalm was greatly troubled. He saw redcoats with saunders opposite Beauport, redcoats at the island, redcoats at the point of the levee, and redcoats guarding the levee batteries. He had no means of finding out at once that the redcoats with saunders and at the batteries were marines.' and that the redcoats who really did belong to Wolfe were under orders to march off after dark that very night and join the other two brigades which were coming down the river from the squadron above Cap Rouge. He had no boats that could get through the perfect screen of the British fleet, but all that the skill of mortal man could do against these odds he did on that fatal eve of battle, as he had done for three years past, with foes in front and false friends behind. He ordered the battalion which he had sent to the plains on the 5th, and which Vaudreuil had brought back on the seventh, now to go and camp at the Foulon, that is, at the top of the road coming up from Wolfe's landing place at the Ais Foulon. But Vaudreuil immediately gave a counter order and said, We'll see about that tomorrow. Vaudreuil's tomorrow never came. End of chapter seven, part one.